Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now, on with the show. Tony here. If you've been enjoying One Step Beyond, and especially if you enjoy the fact we don't have ads running through it, please consider dropping something in the tip jar. Think of when you encounter a busker. You like what you hear, you put some loose change in the hat, and you go about your day knowing that you're doing your own little part to encourage creativity. Just look for the Support This Show link on whatever app you're using to listen along, or visit Supporter acast.com forward slash one step beyond thank you and now on with the show hey you and welcome back to one step beyond a show that encourages you to take a step outside your comfort zone and enrich your life and when i say welcome back that's because this episode number 29 is the second half of a two-part interview with erin blankenship who co-founded equal playing field an organisation that believes that women deserve nothing less than opportunity, equality and respect across all sports. With the focus, though, very much on the beautiful game, which is, of course, football or soccer. Words we'll use interchangeably in this discussion without judgement. I interviewed Erin and edited the first half of our conversation from a dining room table in Beverley, Yorkshire, England, where I was born and where I was visiting for the first time since the pandemic. And I'm now back at my regular desk in Kingston, New York, fresh off a full day of travel. And it seems an excellent time to be broadcasting this particular interview because, having just spent that month in the UK, right around the end of its traditional football season, with winners decided in domestic and Europe-wide League and Cup competitions during the month of May, I've now left the country just four days into the month-long fiesta of international football that is Euros 2020 the name carried over from its pandemic summer postponement. For those outside Europe with perhaps only a passing interest in the game, the Euros are Europe's own World Cup, traditionally held every four years in between the actual World Cup finals. Of course, those inside Europe will need no introduction, the tournament being played out in public, with every game live on television, dedicated daily pull-out sections in the papers, international flags flying everywhere and home country shirts being worn accordingly. As much as it's a festival of football, I sense that this particular tournament, which has been played right across Europe, whereas the finals are usually held in a dedicated host country per the World Cup, is providing enormously overdue and welcome relief and entertainment as we hopefully gain control of the deadliest pandemic in a century. I watched a few of the opening weekend's games inside pubs that were still closed to the public only a month ago. And while I suspect that it helps with the interest in Great Britain that all three nations, England, Scotland and Wales, have qualified for the same tournament for once, England and Scotland in fact being in the same group, I suspect that similar enthusiasm is being exhibited all across the continent, even among and inside those countries that didn't qualify for the finals. Now this is of course a men's Euros we're talking about, and though the women's game is very much on the rise in Europe, it's still playing second fiddle. Unlike in the USA, where the introduction of Title IX in the 1970s enshrined into law gender equality in school sports, 
introducing multiple generations of female participants into football at a young age, which led in turn to the US national women's team's international dominance. Title IX is a far cry from the ban on women's football introduced in Britain by none other than the Football Association itself, exactly 100 years ago, on the grounds that, quote, the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. But it's probably no coincidence that this ban came hot on the heels of rapidly rising attendances in the UK for the women's game, including a record-breaking 53,000 for a domestic match the day after Christmas 1920. It also came shortly after women gained the vote in the USA and serves as a reminder that when you challenge convention and tradition, those who hold the keys to those traditions and conventions often physically lock you out. So yes, the world remains a complicated place and Erin has experienced and lived many of those complications, especially where it comes to gender roles. On the previous episode, she discussed her own background growing up in Saudi Arabia her years spent playing professional football in London for top clubs, for a pittance, while earning her postgrad degree, her job as a regional peace and conflict advisor for the World Food Programme in the Middle East, and how and why she co-founded Equal Playing Field, when a British friend, Laura Youngson, called her about five years ago, frustrated by the lack of media coverage of female sports, and suggested that they organise taking two teams of international female football players for a properly competitive 90-minute match on a full-size field in the crater atop of Mount Kilimanjaro to prove that women could reach higher than men if they so chose. And this was, by far and away, the highest altitude game of football ever attempted. Since that successful adventure, Equal Playing Field has broken four more world records. We'll reconvene with the first on Killy in this episode, and then we'll talk more about the second one in particular, after which Arian will detail how Equal Playing Field helps make a difference at the grassroots level, and we'll look at how far the women's game has come internationally and the challenges it still faces. So with that, let's get ready to go. One step You mentioned about uh, taking a, a movie crew, a documentary crew up Kilimanjaro, mm-hmm. and I'm sure anybody who listens to this is just immediately thinking, I want to see this. I want to <laughs> like, I want to see these people. I mean, I'm, I'm presuming you didn't leave any dead bodies up there. They, no, you came, no, we came all back. survived. It was right. Great, yes. <laughs> so, so you did it in 2017. Uh, can we see a movie yet? Absolutely. So, Be in Sports did the documentary, that first documentary for. Um, it's about an hour long. They still have it on their on their website. And if you Google "Be in Sports Kilimanjaro Equal Playing Field," it'll pop up, and you can still see it. Uh, there is also actually a, a an actual a film, a documentary uh, storytelling film that's just been released uh, or is coming out this year. Uh, that's being done by another independent director who's covered multiple journeys of ours. Uh, so both Jordan and Kilimanjaro. Uh, and this is a story that's more about five or six of the key women sort of storytellers within Equal Playing Field and sort of how they got to the mountain, why they were participating as a, as a different perspective. And that's also called Equal Playing Field. We are very fortunate that people actually want to tell our story. <laughs> we, right. we have a couple of good journalists that, that we work with regularly. Uh, we have our own media team that, that covers footage and stories, but to have other people who really want to 
push the boundaries of how it can be shared is is amazing. I didn't get to see much um, by by comparison about going down to the Dead mm-hmm. Sea, and that that did pose its own challenges in its own yeah. ways, though, from what I read. So, can you t- can you talk about those? Sure. The Dead Sea project was uh, not really planned in the same way that Kilimanjaro was. So Kilimanjaro, we had about a year and a half where we were building everything and and putting it together. The Dead Sea came about because we had two Jordanian national team players that came with us to Kilimanjaro and they came home heroes. The, The country, they were on every radio show, every TV program. These women have just like completely transformed themselves, the, the, the conversation around, around women in football. Um, and as part of that, uh, they were actually supported under the, the King Hussein Foundation, helped give them some of their funding to be able to go. And when we came back, uh, Prince Ali bin Al-Hussein, uh, who is the head of the Jordanian FA and a huge advocate for women's sport in his country and globally, reached out through his network to say, I was incredibly impressed and proud of what you know our team and you were all able to achieve is there any way we could do something similar here in Jordan I want to make a statement for women's football Jordan had just hosted the under 17 women's world cup you had girls pulling in thousands of spectators in a middle eastern country like this was this was momentum to be built on and uh, so nine months later we found ourselves on our second on our second world <laughs> world record challenge. Uh, and the, the program we came up with was to do something really specific for the region, right? So the Middle East and North Africa is not a part of the world where female athletes are encouraged. Uh, for the most part, they are generally underestimated. Women full stop are underestimated and underrepresented. So this project, we recruited women primarily from the Middle East and North Africa. So more than 11 countries just within that region. We had seven or eight hijabi athletes, referees and, and medics. Uh, but we did a, <laughs> a hundred kilometer hike down, down the Jordan desert, working with Bedouin communities, running camps for girls. So, you know, introduce them to the game, uh, playing exhibition games so that these communities could see women and women from their own part of the world compete at a very high level. And then we uh, managed to work with the Ministry of Youth to get a field built in an underprivileged community at the Dead Sea. So the lowest, the lowest point on earth. So almost 500 meters below sea level, we played in a, in a desert community that never even had a field before. And it was quite a conversation to tell the people who live there, like, actually, the boys aren't allowed to play on it yet. The girls will be the first people to play on this field and, uh, and explaining why. The fact is, different parts of the world have different cultural values. When you work in a part of the world like Jordan, as comparatively progressive and forward thinking as it is, you still have to have a conversation with every father. You know, you still have to sort of explain how the girls will be safe and, you know, that this isn't that is an, an insult, you know, that they need to be proud of them. Uh, you know, it's, it's a conversation about introducing a totally different way of thinking about, you know, girls and women in their communities and, and doing so in a way that makes them feel comfortable. So those were some of the cultural issues faced by the Dead Sea hike. On top of those... You had the logistical challenges of, of hiking 20 kilometer days and playing a game and running a camp for 300 girls in the middle of a camel track. <laughs> but you also had this overarching message for this one was like, 
this is uh, a region that needs to, to have a little bit of a spotlight on it in terms of what women have accomplished, what they are doing, what they are capable of doing. And that was harder for people who had not been in the Middle East before, right? Like more conservative dress. It was 100 degrees out there. We're running camps and I'm like, guys, you're wearing pants. I do hope the American listeners to this show will forgive me for the fact I'm about to intrude and note that pants is one of the biggest discrepancies between the English and American languages. The word pants actually comes from pantaloons, which means long trousers. It does not mean as the rest of the world might believe it to mean underpants. You're wearing pants out there. I know it's hot, but this, you know, we have to find a way to meet them in, in the middle ground. And so there's a lot of that that went on with Jordan and within the Dead Sea Challenge that uh, we didn't have with Killy. So it was different. So you're not dealing, obviously, with altitude, but you're dealing with heat and you're mm-hmm. dealing with the exhaustion of the height. You're dealing with the desert and mm-hmm. um, incredibly dry. Is that right. something? Very, some- very, very dry. Yeah. Yeah, right. and we actually got, we actually got uh, our route was displaced within the first day because of a windstorm. The wind was so bad that people were literally like we had some players that were quite petite and they were literally getting blown towards cliffs. So we had to like reroute where we camped for the night in this abandoned abandoned old restaurant that hadn't been completed yet. Right? right. We camped out on the floor of this building that was on the you know the edge of a edge of a desert scope and reorientated. But yeah, that that kind of adaptability. Uh, and your susceptibility to the weather and mother nature is, uh, it comes much more clear when you're sitting in a desert and, like, oh, I, and you're carrying your water and, and all the rest of it. And I think you're speaking to just something in, in, in general that I think is wonderful, which is that when you take on some kind of adventure, but you add meaning to it, the adventure right presumably becomes more enjoyable. It's maybe maybe the challenge of getting through it is like, well, mm-hmm. I'm not going to fail at this because we've got, we've added meaning to this challenge. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think that meaning becomes your rock, right? Like there are a lot of, there are a lot of times where we could have or should have potentially turned, turned away or stopped, right? Or, you know, sort of called it quits. But when you're part of something bigger, that meaning, the reason you're there, the reason that you're hiking or playing the game um, gives you a bit of inner strength and focus to be like, mm, all of that is true. I'm still going to do it. I'm still going to be a part of not just this internal commitment to the mandate, but I have a team around me who's doing the same thing. We are all here for a collective purpose and goals. And that is where I think you can find another set of legs, right? Yeah. <laughs> your second wind, your third wind, your fifth wind uh, to be able to overcome the obstacles that you're that you're facing you sent me some links to some of the programs some of the camps that you've been involved with and Mm -hmm. if i've got it right one was south africa which you mentioned earlier Mm -hmm. and one of them was mexico but the one Mm -hmm. the one that i found most interesting is partly because we did a story a little bit on this before my my nephew went off to work as a volunteer in Mm -hmm. on the greek islands on the islands of samos Mm -hmm. that would be episode 18 not the samos it ever was about the now, unfortunately, largely forgotten refugee crisis that's hit Europe, Greek islands in particular, and my younger nephew's very own small part in doing his best to help with it. This video uh, is a feature on an Afghan woman whose Mm -hmm. husband, as she says, was taken by the Taliban and martyred, uh, which is one way of saying he was Mm -hmm. murdered. And Mm -hmm. uh, she fled uh, with her kid to, to Greece, where... The camps are no fun. They're subject to all kinds of hostilities. And I guess she had never played football before. 
And just talk talk me a little bit through what what you're doing, what Equal Playing Field is contributing to making that change on the ground, because that was the story that I found most powerful out of those video clips. So the team in Greece is a project that is run as a combination between a group called Hestia FC and the International Olympic Truce Group. And they started a women's refugee football program a couple of years ago. And uh, we came across them through a sport for development forum that, that happens sort of on, a, on an annual basis in, in Germany. Uh, well, many countries have them, but the, we met Hestia when we participated in the street football world uh, forum there. And when I reached out to the head of the Hestia FC club, I was like, I love what you're doing. Uh, we shared, she'd been working with the refugee population in Greece for over a decade. And I had obviously worked in most of the countries that her refugees were coming from. And so I wanted to find out if there was a way that we could support what they were doing, find some funding, get it into their system, and then sort of have a platform for them to talk about what they were doing in a way that they would never have the same audience before. And that's a lot of what we do. We're not trying to reinvent the wheel. Most of these organizations have phenomenal expertise. They know exactly what they're doing, what they really need are resources and an ability to connect with other people who feel passionately about, about what they're doing. And so the, that, that program is very near and dear to most of our hearts. Many of us uh, have either worked in those countries or, or can certainly sympathize with, with the experience or are coming from also refugee host countries, right? So all, all across Europe, you have stories like that that play out and sport is this unbelievable power for most of these women who have been told <laughs> The majority of their lives that they are that they are less lesser than uh, they don't have the right to be on the field and what we've seen uh, with a lot of those refugee programs we've, we've worked with teams in the camps in Jordan for Syrian refugees so Azarak and a couple others is that once the girls start to play their moms come and watch the practices and then the moms wanted to play so all of a sudden they, they see this transformation in their daughters becoming more confident more have better self-esteem doing better in school um, being able to communicate more openly with people and they want to be a part of that they want to also have that experience you know the woman that we that we spoke with in uh in greece is one phenomenal story but she's one of many uh, you know you've got this whole this whole pool of people whose lives have been transformed by what sport gives them um and it's awesome right Let's move into a final part here and and sticking with football. I know that we're talking equal playing field is it's about women's sports you know as a whole but you have chosen to focus on mm-hmm. on football and all the world records have involved football. So I want to just take a minute to for you to um offer an opinion on how things have changed for the better say since you started playing professionally semi-professionally 40 pounds a match in the in the UK. Mm-hmm. And where there are still just gross injustices that need to be corrected. So I think on the pro side that we are, we're at a point in history where you don't get to dial it back again, right? So there have been several renditions of this conversation, at least the last many decades of women in sport. And, and it tends to come up around really superb female athletes who, who start hitting bench runs, like the Serena Williams of the world or Billie Jean King or 
the women's U.S. national football team. I feel finally, finally, that we are at a point where you don't get to ignore this anymore. There will be change. You don't, it doesn't get to be another league that sort of falls apart because there's insufficient resources. I mean, the U.S. women's uh, professional league in the United States has gone through like four or five pilot projects before they actually hit their stride where they are now. And I don't think they're going, they're not turning back. So that is, that's a positive. Um, the investment is starting to come. It's slow. It's a slow trickle effect. And I think that uh, there is just, there's massive opportunity for that to continue to grow. But we are still dealing with institutional structures, at least at the, at the international and even national team level, where the accountability for not investing in women's football uh, and the way that female athletes are treated within those systems is, is still way, way off the mark. Um, and I'm not sure if you, you saw it, but within the last couple of years, uh, the indictment by FIFA of the head of the Afghan women's football program, right, for sexual abuse against players for years, right? And, you know, the, the reporting mechanism at the time uh, was that if a girl had a, had a complaint against someone in the federation, she had to go to actually the person who had been committing the offense, right? There was no safe reporting mechanism. And that's not just women's football, that's women's sport across the board, right? That's really systematic. That kind of lack of access or lack of accountability um, is, is something that I think is very serious. This particular case of which Erin speaks is much more than merely serious. It's utterly horrific. It was broken by The Guardian back in November 2018. A former women's head of the Afghan Football Federation actually had to flee the country because she found out in the course of her investigation uh, claims of physical abuse, sexual abuse, death threats and rape. I'll put a link to the Guardian story in the show notes. And in the meantime, let's get back to the business of women playing football rather than the unfortunate, often sexual and physical abuse heaped upon them. I would also say that we are running some risk of having women's football or women's sport follow the exact same pathway as men's sport. And this is a, it's a very interesting dialogue in that, you know, there are things about women's sport and women's football that are different and probably better than the systems and sort of structures that have been pushed forward for the last hundred years in the men's game. My, my biggest worry are the pathways to getting to the professional game. I think we do pretty well in theory on getting grassroots options, like that's getting better. The recognition for equal pay and, you know, parity on field access or travel or hotels, et cetera, is at least it's a conversation now and countries, you know, certain countries have started to, to shift it, right? So New Zealand, Norway, uh, the UK, even in this first year is the first year they're, you know, they have the same uh, performance payment to their, to their athletes for participating in international matches between the men's and women's teams. This is essentially true, though I do feel compelled to point out that because there is not a UK women's team, it's actually the English FA, the same English FA that banned women from playing on football league grounds a century ago, is now paying women and men the same amount to play for their country and indeed bonuses too. That sounds laudable. They're joined by Australia, New Zealand, Brazil and Norway at my last count. However, the disparity in 
tournament prize money is enormous. Essentially, the French got almost 10 times as much money for winning the Men's World Cup in 2018 as the American Soccer Federation got for winning the Women's World Tournament in 2019. On a domestic level, I was down on the south coast in England just a few days before recording this. Just outside Brighton, there is a town called Lewis. Their football club claims to be the first in the UK to be paying men and women the same amount. The sponsorships are still grossly, grossly imbalanced, but the movement is starting. But it's the pathways in the middle, which I think are really, really difficult on the women's side, because you're also dealing with all of the cultural and social taboos around being a female in, you know, in your teens, 20s, 30s, 40s, who wants to play and participate in sport, and you don't really have those options. So when I look at, you know, FIFA or the other structures out there that are supposed to be growing the game, my question mark is like, where are their channels? Where can people after the age of 12 continue to play if they're not going to be on a professional team? When you start to have that comparability between the men's and women's sides, I think that will be a benchmark to, to really measure some success by. Yeah, and there's so many areas we could go off and talk about there because it's really struck me as we were talking that the football is governed by men in suits Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of sexism, historical sexism and, you know, cultural prejudice that comes with that. And thinking about FIFA, which is kind of, been proven to be corrupt from top to bottom and it's a corrupt organization of men so when I'm hearing you saying we don't want to just go down that path I think that was a really important point because otherwise you're just being governed by the men and that in and of itself is is a really fierce debate right because uh, and you see this even with the way that the women's teams are named when they're coming out of like men's clubs like oh so and at the at the professional club level you see you know like is this man united women's side and man united men's side or do you or do you call it something different do you create a a totally different governing structure and on the one hand there there's reason to argue for yes separating them and on the other hand it's like the moment you separate them your access to budget goes to one percent but the moment you step in because that's happened quite a bit in both at the national and the professional club level where you just are like oh here's the women's side and because they only get 300 fans a week this is how much budget they're going to get. And you can't, you can't overcome those obstacles if you only have so much access to the bandwidth and focus of the people in charge. Right. Well, I think you're talking a lot about chicken and egg here because you know, the, reason, the reason a game might get 300 supporters is because there's not the investment, exactly. so there's not the advertising, there's maybe not the, you, you know, the sport is maybe not at a level that, right. that hasn't had the chance mm-hmm. to grow. You see it in the United States, the investment was made, Title IX had something to do with it, girls gravitated to the sport. You end up not only with the, the greatest team in the world, but you also end up with that team as role mm-hmm. models. And that's a but it's an expression we haven't used yet, but maybe a good place to end because the American women's football team are role models for a couple of generations mm-hmm. of girls, a few generations of girls. And I think that's really, really, really important. They look up to the women sports figures just as much as they would a woman, a female mm-hmm. musician, actress, mm-hmm. anything that you want to mention. Yeah, exactly. And the, the power of a role model. right? And maybe we get a little cynical about that as we get older. Um, because we're disillusioned by the systems, <laughs> but the the absolute inspirational capacity of someone doing something that you admire as as a kid is just it it changes it changes the way you look at the world it changes the way you think about yourself the way you think about other people and it's something that we should not be taking for granted and then 
Laura, my other co-founder for Equal Playing Field, she, in one interview that she did in our first year, she's like, you know what? I really don't want to be having this conversation in 50 years. That's my mark of a success. Like, I don't want my daughters or granddaughters, I don't want any younger generation girl to think that there had ever been a time where they weren't considered equal to their male counterparts on anything that they decided to do. I want to get over this. I just want to play football. I want to be, I want to be considered, you know, for my talent, my hard work and, and have access to the game that I love full stop. That's it. And, and in doing that and in fighting for that and for that purpose, I think you, you really do give voice to generations of, of people who are, who are looking at this in a very different way. And, and it's exciting. When, when Holland won the women's euros back in the day, their immediate enrollment numbers for women's football went up by 9% within three months of them having won, right? They came to a big, like a, an emperor's welcome, right? A million people in the public parks, all dressed in orange, screaming their names of their, of their team that came through, shifted. And, and all of a sudden, you saw this just huge interest from an increase in interest from girls and women, a shift in investment in, in the climate for growing the game. And now, you know, they were in uh, the last final of the World Cup as, as one of the a serious competitive team. It's just, it's great to see how quickly that can happen. I guess a final question is probably a really obvious one. Is there another world record in, in the offing? Uh, absolutely. And can you tell us absolutely. what it is? Uh, England will be hosting the, the Women's Euros next summer. And so we have been devising uh, some plans for that. And I'm not going to give them away, but it, it'll, be, it'll be, I think, a, an incredible opportunity to reflect on everything that has changed for, for the good in, in women's football. And we plan to do it in the UK. We actually have been in talks with the women's rugby and cricket as well to sort of talk about as a more collective women in sport platform. And uh, yeah, it's going to be, it's exciting. We always have records up our sleeves. That's, that's we get, we love the challenge. Uh, so the women's world cup in Australia, New Zealand, the women's Euros in the UK as, as the big elite level competitions, but there's a, there's a couple live volcanoes globally that have enough space for a pitch. So we've been looking at those, uh, you know, yeah, we have we have some ideas. We're gonna have fun following yeah. that as well. Thank you so much for taking taking time out. I know you're I know you're traveling next week to a to a, a conflict zone. So I really appreciate you took the time on this. And again, thank you for all that you've done and that you're doing, and for just making it inspirational and and entertaining at the same time. It's it's wonderful. Thank you so oh, much, no, Erin. Thank Good you so much it. for for reaching out and for an opportunity to speak with you. I it's always always a pleasure to have a chance to talk about the incredible people I'm working with and the stuff we get to do because we're crazy enough to try yeah. it. <laughs> you are indeed. So don't ever stop being crazy. That's the main takeaway. <laughs> You can find out a lot more about Equal Playing Field by just going to equalplayingfield.com. But I will also put a whole bunch of links to various articles and videos, etc., social media, uh, pertaining to the various issues that Erin has discussed during our wonderful interview. Thank you again to her for her time. I will say again that one of the great things about doing this show is that I get an education. I know a lot more about the women's game now than I did previously. 
I still don't know enough, but it sent me down a rabbit hole of discovery, and I really look forward to watching more games on national and international competitive levels in the future. Two podcasts I have been listening to quite a lot, though, over the last year and a half that are completely focused on women's sports are Keeping Track, three Olympians from two countries, including two moms and one current pro, come together to talk about the inspiring figures, important topics and interesting stories in women's sports. The other one is Burn It All Down, uh, which describes itself as the feminist sports podcast you need. Both come highly recommended from me. Links to those will also be in the show notes. I mentioned last time out that I might take the Zoom recorder out on one of my adventures in the UK. I did intend to do that. I had this wonderful 10 hours on my feet the third Saturday. I was up in the Yorkshire area, went out to the North York Moors to the absolutely picturesque, beautiful village of Rosedale Abbey. Had myself a wonderful 10 hours on my feet in training for Manitou's Revenge, which takes place the last weekend of June. It was not quite like training in the Catskills, but it was great training nonetheless. Um, There was very little phone service while I was there, so my original map that I had drawn on all trails got kind of thrown to the wind I had to act on instinct frequently found myself off footpaths found myself out on the moors found myself wandering through woods and uh, a point that I was going through what was an official trail but was a narrow and by narrow I mean a five inch wide maybe three inch wide gap through the heather on the uh, moor between Rosedale Abbey and Lustingham. And my phone died on me completely, had to double back, had to then take the wider path down to Lustingham. It was one of those kind of days where it was just utterly beautiful. It was a a Saturday, there were quite a lot of people out, though not on the five-inch or three-inch wide patches of heather, but there were a lot of people around Rosedale Abbey itself. I found it quite a lively little village, actually. There were at least one or two caravan parks um, alongside it and camping sites and it gave the place a bit more life than the other villages I'd been to in the previous weekends. There was a nine-hole golf course on the hill out of town. Um, Sure it's quite hard playing golf on a hill. This hill climbed 500 feet in about half a mile so so the golf was a bit of a challenge. I'm sure it was even more of a challenge given that when I did climb through it Uh, every single golfer seemed to have a bottle of beer in their hand. It was that kind of day, that kind of place. God knows I wandered around. I covered a lot of miles, but the intention was really to spend the time on my feet. So some of it was hiking, some of it was running, all of it was fun. And the thing that struck me most about it was this aspect that we haven't been able to travel because of the pandemic, and this is all too sadly true, This whole trip was my first flight in almost 18 months. I usually go back to the UK way more often than that. It felt like going back to Beverly in Yorkshire was not somewhere new to me, not being in my mother's house. And yet all three villages I went to and based my runs on I hadn't been to before. And I'd never, despite many years of intending it, never really treated myself to that full day on the York moors i wasn't quite out on the wild and windy moors that kate bush sung about but it was it was close enough at times and 
it, it really struck me that we can talk and aspire to traveling abroad. And there are still so many more places I want to go in the world, like everywhere. But there's travel to be had at home. And the same way that last summer, necessity being the mother of invention, I had my first ever vacations in New Hampshire and Rhode Island. And more recently, this uh, late winter spring, got up to a part of the Adirondacks I'd never been to before. It was amazing that it was only an hour and a half's drive from Beverly to Rosedale Abbey. And yet it was somewhere utterly and totally brand new for me. And God knows I had the greatest day out there. I, again, made all the more fun, if also all the more challenging by the fact that I either didn't have phone service or my phone decided to die at the very point I was charging it. My best memory might actually be, apart from chatting with some friendly people, when I did get down to Lusting, I'm going in this uh, pub to just get my water refilled. I had taken a bank card with me. I swear it was all I could do not to just say, you know what, take the bank card, pour me a pint of bitter and uh, give me whatever chips, french fries you got and whatever veggie burger, vegan burger you got with that. I did resist the temptation. I rewarded myself instead on the drive back by stopping in the town of Malton, named for the malt, and going to the Brass Castle Brewery, which is an all-vegan, all-gluten-free brewery and one of the very, very best craft breweries in Britain. And uh, sitting there in the window and watching the world go by, obviously only had the one beer. I still had more distance to drive home, but managed to bring a few more with me. I then brought those down to the south coast when I finally got a break over my final weekend, just as the Euros were starting had the great fun of going to Brighton, a place I do know very, very well, meeting with one other very best friend there, watching the England game in a pub there, and also getting some running out on the south coast around the village of Who, which is spelled H-O-O-E, which I swear sounds like Hooey, but running in some different kind of fields and footpaths than I had had up in Yorkshire, and just staying really fit in that regard, think I'm about as well trained for Manitou's revenge as I can be under these circumstances. And finally, I also had this uh, sort of double header where having not been on a bus or a tube in either New York City or London, of course, bus or subway in New York City or bus or underground in London in 18 months, I managed to do both in 24 hours. Uh, the night I left, I parked up at Heathrow at a cheap hotel, caught the bus and the underground into London to Piccadilly Circus to meet with some very best friends there because I couldn't really turn up the chance. And the next day, flying back to New York City, caught the bus and the subway to Port Authority and then said, you know what? I watched the uh, the eight o'clock game. I watched the last game of the Euros yesterday in London. I'm going to watch today's last game of the Euros in New York City because it just makes me feel like an international jet setter, which I'm really, really not. But it was nice to feel that way anyway. I went to the place called Beer Authority, right opposite Port Authority, to watch the second half of France versus Germany. I have to say the conversation with Erin has made me all the more aware of football's appeal all across the board, the challenges it faces, the triumphs it can inspire. And I got home tired, but happy. I thank everybody for listening to the show as always. And I'll see you next time here for One Step Beyond. Remember, take it easy and take a step outside your comfort zone. It may just enrich your life. 
One Step Beyond is written, produced and narrated by Tony Fletcher. Incidental music is by Noel Fletcher, unless otherwise stated. The theme song is by Madness, used with permission, and the logo is by Mark Lerner. Special thanks to Radio Kingston for airing these episodes and for supplying studio space when not under lockdown. If you like what you hear, please consider throwing us a tip via the Support This Show button on your phone or by visiting supporter.acast.com slash one step beyond lowercase. You can also hit the subscribe button and or leave a positive rating and or review. It all helps. One Step Beyond is on social media, mainly on Instagram. Just search One Step Beyond with Tony Fletcher there or on Facebook and Twitter and we should come up straight away. To subscribe to a newsletter, to reach out via email and especially if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, the address is onestepbeyond at ijamming.net. One Step Beyond is available on just about every podcast platform known to man and most likely a few that have yet to be discovered. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy and stay active.